Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. Welcome back to Coast to Coast. Derek Gilbert, our special guest. Derek, of course, was with me about two years ago. Derek hosts Skywatch Television, a Christian television program that airs on several national networks. Long-running interview podcast, A View from the Bunker, and co-host Sci Friday, a weekly television program that analyzes science news with his wife, author and analyst Sharon Gilbert. His professional radio career spanned two decades, including stops in Philadelphia, St. Louis, and Little Rock. Derek launched PID Radio and Sharon in the early 2005 era, making it one of the first podcasts on the Internet. You were uh, paving some ground there, Derek. Welcome back. Well, thank you, George. I appreciate that. Uh, I think it's it's uh, amusing. Last time I was on your program was with uh, Josh Peck. We co-authored a book about the UFO phenomenon. As Josh likes to remind me that uh, my radio career ba- began the year that he was born. So <laughs> that's right. And you did a stint in St. Louis. Where were you? I was, uh, in fact, as we talk, I am on the station I used to work for. There it was at ninety-seven-one, but back in the day, that was top forty. That's right. Absolutely, it's a great station. Great people there too, Derek. Yeah, but to you be to listen sure. to you when you were on uh, uh, the Big 550. That's right, as the Nighthawk. Right, right. That's doing my stuff. Super. And you really started branching into a lot of these different areas. Tell me about the evolution of you and your career and your wife, Sharon. Always been interested in the way things work. I guess I inherited that from my father, who is uh, an engineer uh, by birth, by training. Um, I didn't go that direction, but <clears throat> inherited his desire to figure out the way things work. Uh, Sharon and I married in uh, 1998 and uh, began looking into some of the, uh, say, the political conspiracies, but we began to realize that there's more going on than meets the eye. And and I think you would agree with that. that, uh, Oh, yeah. Reality, what we perceive as reality is just a small subset of what's actually real out there. And so in digging into that uh, just led into the research that's now produced, well, a number of books, um, what's funny is that you mentioned my podcast, and thank you for that. Um, in the course of interviewing uh, people who you've had as guests on your program, like Steve Quayle. Mm-hmm. Uh, Said Steve's on tomorrow night, as a matter of fact. Ah, okay. And uh, L.A. Marzulli. Um, I, I began to get a reputation as somebody who was obsessed with the Nephilim, the giants mentioned in the Bible. Um, and it wasn't really the case, but the funny thing is now, over the last couple of years, it actually turned out to be the main area of research that I've been doing, uh, because the more we find out from archaeologists and historians, the more we realize that these entities, these beings, were not only known to uh, the cultures around ancient Israel, but they actually play a central role in the Bible, and that's just not been communicated to the Christian Church. Why not? I think around the time of Augustine, who was very influential in the direction of Christian theology back in the 5th century A.D., he was coming out of a cult called uh, the Manichaeans, and they venerated angels. And so I think as a reaction to his own personal experience, and maybe a desire to counter some of the criticism that uh, Christians were taking for believing in the existence of literal giants who were the product of angels who came to earth and mated with human women, uh, he tried to find a natural explanation for that very weird section of Genesis chapter 6. The first five verses there talk about the angels, the sons of God, who saw that the daughters of man were fair and took wives of all they chose, and from them came the Nephilim, the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Uh, And that's where we got the sons of Seth 
theory, the idea that righteous men who were sons of Seth, the son of Adam and Eve, mated or married the daughters of Cain. And uh, that's been the default understanding among Christians now for the last 1,500 years or so. That's pretty much the default teaching in most seminaries today. But in order to arrive at that teaching, that understanding of Genesis 6, you have to throw out uh, Hebrew grammar and what the apostles and prophets knew about the beliefs of their neighbors. You have studied this for a number of years. What got you interested in this facet, Derek? Just the, the idea that there's something so weird in the Bible that was believed not just by the, 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 uh, the Jews of the, the uh, period before the birth of Jesus, but the early church, the early church fathers up through the 5th century accepted this as, as the truth. It's, it's referenced in some of the letters of the epistles, uh, the, the apostles, that is, uh, Peter and Jude in particular mention this. But then when I started looking into what the uh, cultures around ancient Israel believed, you know, what did the, uh, the Canaanites believe? What did the, uh, the people of Mesopotamia believe? What did the ancient Hittites believe? You begin to find out, it's like, wait a minute, Moses didn't just make up uh, this stuff to fill space in the books of you know, Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Numbers and so on. Uh, the cultures around ancient Israel knew who the Nephilim were. They called them by different names, called them Anakim. They're mentioned in Egyptian texts. Rephaim, and there's good scholarly evidence now that's only come to light within the last 50 years, that not only did the Canaanites know who the Rephaim were, just a different name for the spirits of the giants of old, uh, they venerated them, which is the title of the most recent book that Sharon and I authored, Veneration. But that belief was then transmitted to the Greeks and Romans as hero worship. So we can draw a straight line from the Nephilim of Genesis 6 through, say, Hercules, and uh, not to step on any toes here, but even beyond that, then to the veneration of the saints in uh, Roman Catholic and Orthodox churches today. Now, the latest book, of course, Veneration, the subtitle is very intriguing, Unveiling the Ancient Realms of Demonic Kings and Satan's Battle Plan for Armageddon. How close are we, in your opinion, Derek, to this Armageddon? Well, I think we're a lot closer now than we were 2,000 years ago. Um, don't like to set dates or anything, but certainly the conditions appear to be in place for that to take place. I, I don't personally don't believe that uh, Christians will be on the earth when this happens, but in the book we don't get into any kind of timeline setting as far as a, a rapture or anything like that. Armageddon will be the final battle of the ages, and uh, we equate it in the book with the prophecy of the war of Gog and Magog that Ezekiel lays out in chapters 37 and 38 of his book. Um, but we also go a, a step farther. Rather than looking for, uh, say, a human opponent in the war of Gog and Magog, it's kind of become the default belief among a lot of Christians who study prophecy to look at Russia as Gog or the land of Magog and then try to identify a leader. You know, Vladimir Putin must be Gog of Magog. Mm -hmm. uh, many of the Jewish rabbis think that it's, uh, well, Bashar al-Assad of Syria. We point out in the book that when you understand what the Hebrew prophets knew about the spirit realm, they point to a, call it a cosmic north. There's a mountain that is on the border between Turkey and Syria that was known in the ancient world, the days of the prophets, as the place where... Baal, who was the king of the Canaanite pantheon, uh, where his palace was located. 
There's a Hebrew phrase used only three places in the Bible, including Ezekiel's prophecy of the war of Gog and Magog, that points to that mountain. Uh, Isaiah also uses it in the, uh, the very famous passage in Isaiah chapter 14, How thou art fallen, O Lucifer, son of the morning. That's the place where he wants to establish his throne. Um, but it was understood by the prophets and the early church that that was where Baal came from, and Jesus in the New Testament significantly identifies Baal as Satan. The point is not that the Antichrist or Gog of Magog is coming from Turkey or Syria or some combination of the two. It's that it's a supernatural enemy who leads the, uh, these, this demonic army into battle at Armageddon. And uh, it's coming from Cosmic North. It's coming from the headquarters of Satan. Now, in your opinion, what is demon? What is a demon? And how did the origin of demons begin? This is the understanding of the, the Jews up until the time of Jesus' birth and into the second century. It was, this is the understanding of the early church. Demons are the spirits of those giants created in Genesis chapter 6 before the flood, when the flood swept over the earth and destroyed all living flesh on the earth. The spirits of those giants were prevented from the normal entry into the afterlife, condemned to wander the earth, plaguing or tormenting humans until the judgment. So, very simply, demons are the spirits of the giants of old. These demons, what created them? It's uh, apparently because their spirits were, well, miscegenated. They were hybrids. They're neither fully angelic, neither fully spirit, nor fully human. And so they don't belong really to either realm. Um, uh, this is uh, expanded on in the Book of Enoch, which is not in the Bible except for the uh, the Ethiopic Bible, but um, the Book of Enoch was known to the early church. Again, the apostles Peter and Jude uh, mention it in their, their letters. So it's, it's, even though there are reasons for it not to be in the Bible itself, it does expand on that, that little incident in uh, Genesis chapter 6, that significant incident in Genesis chapter 6. Uh, it goes into some detail as to who these uh, angels were who decided to rebel, uh, where they rebelled. According to the Book of Enoch, they descended to Mount Hermon, which is uh, uh, about a 9,000-foot mountain on the border between Israel, Syria, and Lebanon. Uh, and they made a mutual pact to agree to go through with this rebellion against God by commingling with humanity uh, and creating this hybrid race of giants. Uh, and again, according to the Book of Enoch, God said that because their spirits were neither angelic, neither or neither spirit nor human, but both, uh, a a hybrid that was never supposed to be, their spirits would be condemned to remain on Earth and uh, be the cause of uh, all kinds of trouble for humanity until the final judgment. Why was it bad to deal with, you know, the dead? trying to contact the dead, trying to do these things. It brought disaster to the Israelites. How come? This was something that Moses was instructed by God. You know, don't consult with necromancers, people who claim they can speak with the dead. Don't uh, summon them through rituals. Don't uh, uh, consult with mediums. These were things that were being done by the pagan neighbors of ancient Israel, the, the uh, Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, the, the Canaanites in particular. Uh, the reason is that the spirits of the dead aren't, really the spirits of the dead. We only see one example in the Bible of a human spirit who returns, and this is when 
King Saul goes to the medium at the uh, Endor, trying to get a message to uh, trying to call Sam, the prophet Samuel, up from the dead. Uh, Samuel had died. God wasn't responding to any of Saul's prayers, so he goes to a medium, and Samuel comes up. Now, interestingly, in the biblical account, the the uh, medium when the spirit of Samuel rises from the earth, she cries out with a loud voice. I believe that's because she was startled. It wasn't her demonic spirit guide. It wasn't her familiar. It was actually Samuel. But that's the only example we see in the Bible of a human spirit still hanging around on earth and interacting with uh, the humans. However, those demonic spirits, those spirits of the old giants, the Nephilim, were still around and interacting with humans. And an entire culture the uh, Canaanite, the Amorite cultures were based on having to appease the spirits of the ancestors. Every 30 days they had to summon the ancestors by name in a necromancy ritual and feed the ancestors. Uh, this was always done on the 30th of the month, according to ancient texts, the night of no moon, because even 4,000 years ago they understood the moonless night was a night when the veil between the worlds was thinnest. But they weren't the spirits of the ancestors, they were the spirits of these demons. And I believe that's why God made it very clear to Moses, tell Israel, you're not doing this. Were these demons also what we would call uh, Satanist devils, things like that? Well, they're certainly the minions of Satan. Uh, Isaiah chapter 14 makes it clear that when the rebel from Eden, Satan, is cast down from heaven, uh, the English translation of the Bible will say, the shades rise up to greet thee. But the word translated shades is Rephaim. And there are a number of places in the Bible where that word Rephaim, which was the name applied to these spirits by the pagan neighbors of ancient Israel. Again, Moses didn't invent this term. Um, where it's translated as the dead or shades. So we kind of lose the context that these Rephaim were the divinized dead kings of old, the mighty men who were of old, as they're described in Genesis chapter 6. And, and getting back to the... Uh, disaster that came on Israel, the, the book of Numbers describes a plague that afflicted Israel while they were camping on the east side of the Jordan River, just before they crossed over to attack the city of Jericho. 24,000 Israelites died in this plague, and it was stopped because the grandson of Moses' brother Aaron, Phinehas, took a spear and, um, well, stabbed a prince of Israel and a princess of the country of Midian, who were engaged in some fertility rite, it appears. But when you read deeper into the Bible, you see that what actually provoked God's anger, and this is in Psalm 106, was that they were eating sacrifices offered to the dead, which again was the common practice among the neighboring pagan Canaanites. Are we doing that today? Many cultures around the world still engage in this today, George. Uh, all over the world, there are practices on... In Africa, uh, in Asia, veneration of the ancestors is a common thing. Um, shrines are set up in homes in many cultures around the world where offerings are, are put forth for the ancestor to consume. Again, to based on the belief that ancestors can still intercede for us. They can cross over from the spirit realm and affect us in the land of the living. Christian teaching has never been that this is possible. And yet, as I mentioned earlier, um, this has kind of crept into some uh, denominations of Christianity as uh, prayers to the saints. And this was actually going back to St. Augustine, the result of his attempt to try to Christianize a practice that, um, 
the early church could not stamp out. How dangerous is it to try to dabble with the dead, Derek? Well, it's uh, the danger that uh, I think most people agree uh, you can bring on yourself by messing around with the Ouija board. Oh, yeah. I'm opposed to those things. Exactly, because it's not really the dead that we're dealing with. We're dealing with these evil spirits, these hybrid spirits that are neither angel nor human, uh, but are masquerading as the spirits of the dead. Uh, They lie, and uh, they will encourage us to engage in practices that interact with them for the deception. They want to lure us away from what's true, into uh, following their path, which ultimately leads to uh, destruction. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.